This is Loudspeaker. Hey there, I'm your host, Sarah Menares, and you're listening to the We Podcast, where together we find inspiration, encouragement, and growth through stories and real talk. Here we navigate the messy human experience together. We raise our voices and speak our truth. In this space, we value the conversations that broaden our perspective and help us fully understand that we are connected, we are capable of growth, and that we are not alone. Are you ready? Let's get real. You're listening to episode number 97. In this episode, I get to talk with Renee Ronica Body Klug. Renee is an innovative educational leader and researcher who is committed to the topics of developing cultural intelligence and fostering inclusive environments. Renee is a very accomplished individual who is really making a positive impact on the world. She's a first-generation American and the proud daughter of a Punjabi father. We talk about multi-ethnicity and identity development, and we really dive into one of Renee's biggest areas of focus, which is centered around faith and religion and how it has become entrenched in politics. She shares her journey through abuse and difficult obstacles and how she's used those experiences to lead as a fearless woman. There are so many beautiful moments of insight and wisdom throughout this entire episode. I can't wait for you to listen. So here we go. Here is my interview with Renee Ronica Buddy Klug. I am really excited to have Renee Ronica Bahati Klug here with me today. And I am really looking forward to diving in with you, Renee, into your story. You are a fascinating person and have a lot of really amazing things going on. Thanks so much, Sarah, for inviting me on. I'm excited to talk to you. I would love to start out with just hearing a bit about your story. You are doing a lot of things with helping people be more culturally intelligent, a lot of work with people's identity development and in the faith-based spheres. I really like to focus, especially in the beginning, on the backstory because Typically, people look at people who are successful and they're thriving and they're they're doing amazing things in life and, and they think that they just maybe magically appeared there, right? Of course. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I like to really focus on the backstory. What what happened, you know, throughout your life? What what were your experiences that brought you to where you are today? What's interesting is that I'm 43 years old now. And there are a lot of things that are going on in my life now that I had been hoping to start when I was 20. So I think that's something I want to say at the very beginning here that yes, it may seem that I have a lot going for me now, but I've been waiting for 20 years. Mm. And it took all of those years to get to this place where I have the confidence and maybe the ability 
to do the things that I had been doing. And, and dare I say that I probably couldn't be doing the things now without some of the setbacks during the last 20 years. But you asked my backstory. I am a, a multicultural individual. My father immigrated here from India in 1969. And he was a student here. And then he married my mom in the mid 70s. She's American and biracial marriages weren't even permitted until the late 60s. So I'm of this first generation where it was actually allowed to be in the both and, but people still weren't familiar with the both and. And I think I was often relegated to either the, the either or or the neither nor, where I was not white. So I wasn't really American in a lot of people's eyes. And I wasn't fully Indian in a lot of Indians' eyes. So I was white. Mm-hmm. Even, and so growing up, especially in Arizona, where I am now, I, I left for a long time and came back and where it is primarily white. And I never, I didn't know where I fit when I was little. There were very few brown people, even fewer black people. And it was one of these things where I knew I didn't belong, but I didn't know why. Mm. Concurrently, there was <laughs> there was a lot there. I'm not I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because it's like, oh my gosh, I have a very long history of uh, sexual and emotional abuse as well. That started as young as three, and happened over many many years with with two different uh, family members. And in addition, I had an alcoholic parent who he is reformed now and no longer uh, an alcoholic. But it was a difficult childhood emotionally. There was a lot of turbulence that happened. But what was cool about that was in my teenage years, I did have a pretty good support system with my parents when I told them what had been happening. I think it it sobered one of them up and sobered all of us. And they really were there for me and they believed me, which I think was really, really important. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of times family secrets continue because people aren't willing to be believed Mm -hmm. or people do keep it quiet. And so that was a really empowering time in my life when I was about 15. 16. And I did have a faith experience when I was just about 18. And I went from being all sorts of religions, you know, I just kind of was, I was a seeker. And I had a conversion to Christianity, uh, which did kind of define my path for the next 20 years. And it also, though, in the last 10 years, maybe five specifically, there's been a breakdown, not so much of my faith, but of my religion. And but before I get to that, then, you know, I, I traveled around uh, the world, lived in California for undergrad, moved to New York for my graduate work, did fellowships in London and, and France. And then, you know, ended up in, in Colorado, where you are, Sarah, for my husband to do his graduate work, and then ended up in Phoenix in 2012 and ended up having three kids in my 30s. So I have an 11-year-old, a 10-year-old just yesterday, newly minted 10-year-old and a six-year-old. But I also discovered during this time, I was an English professor for 17 years. My first day of teaching in New York was on September 11th, 2001. Mm. That's what sealed to me, like this is what I was meant to do is working with adults and doing this. And it turned out I had a very international class. And as the years went, I primarily taught domestic students, so American students. But when I ended up going to Greeley, there was a full-time position open teaching international students specifically. And it was the perfect fit for me. And that's how I moved into international education. 
And then when we moved here, I got a similar job teaching at ASU. And then about six years ago, they opened up a uh, position as a trainer for faculty and staff. And I got to be the first and currently the only one doing this. And it's been amazing. And that led to my creating a company last year. And that moves us to today. I didn't talk about the breakdown of religion, but maybe I'll stop there because I feel like I gave you a very long answer. But after 43 years, that's a lot of stuff. So I hope I answered your question in the way that you wanted me to. Yeah, I know. How do we talk about our entire history in an hour, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty impossible. (laughs) Highlights. Yeah, yeah. But that was a, it was amazing summary. And I think you really touched on the things that I want to dive a little bit deeper into. And that being, you know, being a multicultural person. And I know we talked prior to recording that I, my daughter is biracial and bicultural. And maybe I should ask you, I feel like the terminology for that changes too. And what is the best terminology even to use now? Racial was what was used for, I I think, when she was younger. Is that still acceptable? It is still acceptable, particularly within the Black community. You know, race is a construct. It truly is. And there are some people who will hold fast that there is only one race, the human race, and then there are many cultures and ethnicities beneath that. I'm still open to the grand scheme of things. And, you know, sometimes I'll refer to myself as biracial and a lot of times multi-ethnic, things like that. So I'm okay with kind of being fluid with the language. And and I think it's just fine. And truly, I think it's an individual choice. Hmm. But I try to honor I more or less use the term Black now instead of African American, Mm because I know a lot of the individuals who are Black that I work with maybe are Caribbean or, or, you know, they're from different parts. They may not actually have roots in Africa, so or they may not be American citizens. So I just say Black to be all-inclusive. Yes. I love being able to just, you know, ask openly, what is, what do you prefer? What is acceptable? Because I think we can get hung up on, am I saying it right? Am I not? So we then just don't say it at all, which is an issue, right? I think it's better to ask or just say, you know, say what you know, biracial is fine. And, you know, multi-ethnic is also fine. Then sometimes I think with the multi-ethnic people think you have three or four, which I do, but you know, it's one of those things where sometimes then people and start digging and asking more. And so, you know, you can do what you want. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I could relate uh, through her to what you were saying at the beginning about not knowing where you fit, not knowing where you belong. I think in college, I did some work on biracial identity development and how really the cultural identity of somebody who has multi-races or multi- multi-ethnicities is much different than that of somebody who is a a dual race. I think so, because there's so much that you have to call from. And sometimes I think people, I don't know, some people reflexively might feel like they have to make a choice, but I really feel empowered to embrace all. And that's why I really situate myself in the both and of Mm -hmm. saying or the, the all that you don't, sometimes you have to choose just for the sake of needing to simplify your life, or maybe you're not at that point, but insofar as you can, why can't you integrate all of those elements into your identity? I wish she was on here and she could talk to you about it, <laughs> but my daughter, yeah. How old yeah. is she? Oh, she's 20 now. 
that's a perfect age. That's exactly that. That's like my favorite age to work with because, you know, college students all of these years. But yeah, this is a great time for identity formation. And I could talk to her all day long about different things that could help that I wish that I had known when I was 20. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing to be able to have these conversations with her because now she can really articulate how she feels and what her experience is. And she's taught me so much about so many things, but especially race and her experience and how it's so much different than mine, even though she's my daughter and just really needing to step out of that one way of thinking, right? Yes. I think we all can do better with that. I agree. So how did you kind of work through that? Like, what has your process been to be able to get to a place where you can embrace the both and and the all rather than what, because I'm, I'm assuming that people put you in a category or people want you to fit inside a clean box. And that's got to be very, very difficult when you know within yourself, you don't fit inside that box. So how do you reconcile that? What does that process look like? I know that it's personal for everybody and there are multifaceted lenses into why we choose. If we feel like we choose, sometimes I think that sometimes we feel obligated to do a certain thing. But for me specifically, you know, when I became a Christian, I think that became part of my new identity where I don't even think culture and race factored in as much. And also I went straight to a a Christian university in California where it was primarily white. And there were very few of us who were multi-ethnic or people of color, if you will, but we did end up gravitating toward each other. And I think people who are the only tend to gravitate to others who are also the the only. And I think that's sometimes uh, subconscious. We don't realize it, but we recognize there's something in you that's the same thing in me, even if we might be different cultures, but that this knowing. And so even if we're not explicit about those things in our conversation, so that kind of happened in college and I kind of found my identity to be more my faith than anything. But in graduate school, I actually had an an East Indian teacher for a fiction class. I I got my MFA in creative writing and we had a few minutes at the end of class left. So this was probably 2000, about, about then. And she picked up a book that was sitting on a fellow student's desk and she just flipped it open and started reading. And as she was reading this, now we're in New York and it was a, it was a cold fall day. I, something awoken in me. I was like, it was familiarity. It was something that I knew deeply and intimately. And when she closed the book, she said who it was, who it was. It was Jhumpa Lahiri's Interpreter of Maladies. And Jhumpa Lahiri is an East Indian author. She's Bengali, I'm Punjabi. But what Jhumpa Lahiri was talking about, she was talking about the Indian experience. It took me back to childhood. It took me back to all of those things that I think that once I did, it turned out that both of my abusers happened to be Indian. But I, so I think when I dealt with all of that abuse as a teenager and into my twenties, I maybe cut that part off of me because it felt like the unsafe part, but that is not true. That's how I coped. But truly, I feel like me reconciling back to my whole self was reconciling back to my childhood, 
to that innocence, who I really was, and really now re-embracing myself as an Indian woman. Now, respecting that I am half, so my, my experience as an Indian person is different than somebody who is fully Indian or from India, and I want to respect that and acknowledge that. But I do have this experience. And so for the next 20 some odd years, I've just tried to incorporate the both, that both my faith and then my, my ethnicity. And, you know, and I think what's also key here is that, you know, when I mentioned the legality of biracial marriage, we are the, I am of the first generation born in the late sixties or seventies to know what it's like to be a cross-cultural kid. Hmm. So now that we are growing up, we are the voices to talk about this. A lot of people say, wow, why doesn't anybody talk about this? Because we're among the first generation. Mm -hmm. So I do hold it. I don't think it's every person of color's responsibility to teach. In fact, I think that that's a, that's a trap that a lot of people put them into, and it's a heavy burden to bear. But I am an educator. And because of that, and I make a choice, uh, I am a safe person uh, to ask questions of about that. And that's what I've chosen to do is empower others in those multifaceted identities. That's beautiful. Very beautiful. So let's talk a bit more about the the religious piece. I'm interested to hear how that plays into all of this. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> well, you know, the religion that I first came into was really pure. And I had a very kind of visceral experience with meeting what I believe is God. And it was kind of like, if you read the Old Testament, it's like Moses, it's like a burning bush. It was very supernatural and it was pure. And then I went to Bible school, which was great. But then I really got entrenched in a lot of religiosity where it's this, you must do this. You cannot do this. It was always don't taste, don't touch, don't do. And if you do, then the flames of hell are going to come and get you. Mm -hmm. It was always this this very kind of detrimental fear that I came to realize in the last 10 years is such a mechanism of control. Because if you actually look at the Bible, Jesus talks about fear a lot. And he does so in the context of not fearing because you are empowered by his love and the love of the father that we truly, he truly is setting out to create a family, if you will, where we are all invited to the table. Hmm. And I realized there had been so much horseshit thinking in, in religious circles that still is perpetuated that very much tells us that there are certain people who belong based on behaviors and certain people who don't based on behaviors. And that is vile hmm. because to me, Entering into a supernatural relationship with God would maybe then motivate me, but I don't have to do that beforehand. And if this is all about behavior modification, I'm out. Mm -hmm. I'm out. Because it's the same thing with my kids. If I just straightjacket them and then wonder why if they grow up, when they grow up, they never contact me, right? Because I haven't developed any sort of family with them. I've just asked them to be the, the very precise people that I have wanted them to be without any sort of freedom or acknowledgement of humanity. And I don't like it one bit. And then, you know, in 2016 or even before then with, with the nationalism that had already always been part, but really the rise of Trumpism, that's when things really fell apart for me. Like that's where I was like, 
you know, things had been running around in my head and I had definitely been moving toward this place of feeling like I can no longer participate in this type of religion. That was the turning point where I was not going to mince any more words. I was done. And so I still do, faith is still a huge part of my life. I practice it much differently. I am very much inclusive of all people. And I, I worship in an organic church where it meets at a house. We don't have a pastor. Women are free to speak, <laughs> which had also been a problem in mainstream church where the, you know, my anatomy sometimes prevented me from, from being who I believe that I could have been. Mm-hmm. Their loss, right? Right. Um, but now I do feel like I'm fully empowered, whether it be because of my ethnicity, my gender, my beliefs. You know, for instance, when I was living in Greeley, Greeley's a small town and I love Greeley, but I went back to work after having my first child and I lost a lot of my friends because there was still the mentality there that if you're a married woman with children, you should be home with your children. Mm. And that was entrenched in a lot of religious thinking and ideology. And I was like, well, if you're willing to pay my bills, I'll quit. But, you know, some people aren't as lucky. Wow. I can really relate to that in so many ways. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry, too. It's it's not exclusive. It ought to be inclusive. And once we get back to an inclusive Christianity, it'll be a palatable Christianity. You know, I've, I've really gone through my own journey of figuring out, really, I... I say it's like an untangling, you know, untangling the things I was taught as a child and figuring out, you know, who I am at my core, what I really truly believe, what resonates with me, what doesn't. And that was so hard to even get to a place where I could do that because of that fear-based mechanism that is that mechanism of control that you said that is in place. I thought if I even questioned it, if I even looked outside of it, if I even, you know, entertained the idea of something different, that I would burn in a fiery hell. And I was literally told that, you know, growing up. And so even just to find the courage to be able to say, you know, maybe there's something different than this, that's a scary first step. It is, but it seems like you made it and I'm glad that you did. Thanks. Yeah, it's there's been a lot of freedom in it. I can say that for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think my, the more, and I'm still doing a lot of work in, in that area. I, I think it, it will be ongoing. You know, our spirituality is definitely ongoing work. But I think the more I look back on the way I was raised in my childhood and how much control there was I'm really starting to realize how abusive that is and how almost really cultic that can be. Yes. And I'm, I'm happy here. I'm not happy that you're using those words, but I'm, I'm thankful you're using those words because I think that really calls it out what it is that, you know, Jesus does pray for unity, but not uniformity. And when you think about those control tactics, we all need to kind of look the same or act the same, behave the same way. And this is how you know you're part of us. And then you have all these different churches that have all these different rules. And I was like, whoa, 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 where is the actual unity? Why are these people in and those people are out? And it really doesn't make any sense. So I think you're really on to something about the cultishness of it. Yeah, that's a, I think even saying, you know, cult, 
using that terminology is was scary for me at first, for sure. But I could really relate to what you said too about you know things really tra- changing since 2016. That has also been the truth for me as well. Yeah, it really was a rubber meets the road kind. I don't even know what that expression means, but whatever it means, that that's what happened. Where it really felt like people to use another expression, people drew a line in the sand and they said, I will not cross this line if this is what it means. And so for many, including me, it meant giving up relationships. It meant people who I, who had been very close to me decided no longer to be close simply because of my politics. And, but that also there underscores a real danger that if all of a sudden American politics drives your faith, I would, I would question the tenets of your faith. Right. And that's not saying I don't question mine either, but I'm saying that that if we truly believe that that an eternal God somehow hinges on who wins the American presidency. I just feel like we, we have lost our footing. Yes. Amen, sister. What do you, what's your phrase? I hear you have a podcast and you told me earlier you say often on your podcast, that's horseshit. Yes. So <laughs> That's right. I see that I tried to call it out that if if whatever whatever lie that we're believing, even if we just realize that we believed a lie during the podcast, which we've done, I, I just try to call it out. That's horseshit. It's not okay. It's not, we should not be thinking that anymore. And usually the things that we're thinking about are well, the things that are horseshit are usually things a lot of us are struggling with, which is good for one of if one of us calls it out, maybe a lot of us can start moving toward a little bit more more freedom like you like you said which is the best word yeah i i can also relate to that line in the sand and i've lost quite a few relationships this this year in particular this past year has been intense and i feel like i have woken up in a lot of ways too when it comes to racial inequality and what's really truly happening in, in our world and, and around us. Yeah, especially with your daughter. I can't you know, even imagine what, what she had to face this past year of recognizing, you know, coming to a reckoning, if you will, that there might be people in her life who are straight up racist. Yes. And who are going to choose politics over people. And that's heartbreaking. And I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. If yes, it definitely did. And that's been something that's been really hard for me to reconcile because people do choose politics. People who I thought loved us, were close to us, we could trust them. And then to find out, wait a minute, you're racist. (laughs) Wait a minute. These two things can't coexist. And uh, being having to say there's no room for this in, in our lives. Yeah. I know. And it devastates me to hear that, but you're, you're not alone in that story. And I think that there's, you know, it felt like everything culminated to 2020. It was all here. All of this was here. The ideologies, the racism, the politics, the everything. Mm -hmm. And 2020 was the, the perfect storm to allow it all to come to the surface where now it was no longer hiding it. Somehow, I don't know what happened. Everybody going home and kind of the world shutting down somehow allowed for everything else to be healed. 
And I mean, dare I thank Donald Trump for that? I don't know. I won't thank him for that. But I think that no other could probably have unearthed what he was able to unearth when every, you know, just the terrible leadership or no leadership in, in my estimation and, you know, allowed for everything to kind of fall apart. And then when you see all the pieces on the floor, you know, you got to decide who you're going to be and what you're going to do. You're listening to a podcast on the Loudspeaker Network. To find other podcasts and unique programming, visit www.loudspeaker.fm. Loudspeaker, diverse voices, unique sound. Feminist Hot Dog is back with a new season packed with awesome interviews with icons, artists, innovators, authors, and lots of surprises. Whether you consider yourself a hardcore feminist or you're feeling feminist curious, tune in Wednesday nights at 8 Mountain and get all the information and inspiration you need to live your best feminist life. Listen Wednesdays on Loudspeaker and Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, love yourself and love your buns. Yeah, it's it really was a shift that that was so hard and so beautiful at the same time. And you can't move forward the same as before, which is is a great thing in in the long run. Yeah. But it doesn't feel very great when it's happening. <laughs> it doesn't. And you know, really, and I'm still working this all out, but even in what I do professionally and linking it to what's going on, you know, culturally and politically and spiritually, I mean, not spiritually, religiously, I don't, you know, I really truly admire those uh, who are seeking spirituality, but with the, you know, the, the entrenched religion, that's what I'm kind of pointing my finger at here. I think it all comes down to power and supremacies and people not wanting to give up whatever power they think that they have. And so that's when you see these these dragon tales of, of racism, of politics, of religion. They all that that tale just swings to try to keep its power in whatever it thinks it has. And I I, I truly think that's what's happening. And it takes quite a while to. I think there's this. Maybe this place where we're at right now where a lot of people are like, okay, I have this information, this happened, and now what do I do? What do I do moving forward? How do we, you know, how do we do things differently? And that seems to be something that you're really focusing on and helping people to walk through. Yeah. Well, it really depends on who you are, but I think in in speaking to people personally and speaking to people corporately, even organizations, whether you're, you know, nonprofit or, cor- or corporate or, you know, whatever, a large entity. I think that what we have to recognize is diversity is a fact. It just is. But not all of us are ready to embrace it. And I think my mission in life and my, my vision long term is to allow us to be able to embrace that that it's not a threat to anybody, actually an asset. And when we look at diversity of people, of thought, of culture, and by culture, that includes, of course, ethnicity, but also generation and economics, faith, so many things comprise culture. 
I think if we can embrace that diversity and we don't look at it from a deficit perspective, but an asset perspective, there could be such a holistic shift in learning, in bringing about more equity. So equity is different from equality. Equality is when everybody is treated the same, but equity is first making sure that the needs of everybody is met. So that everybody then can be treated the same and it's true equality, we haven't even gotten to equity yet. So to say equality is just, it's fine, but it's, it's, you're, you're, you're moving ahead. But you know, you've got a lot of people who are like, well, with equity, then we have handouts, right? And these people just need to work harder. But then you've, and then now you have to go into the systemic things. And so for those of us who are ready to move into the systemic issues, not everybody is, mm-hmm. that's where the real work happens. So the embracing diversity is a choice and then you've got to do the real work. And that's what I would invite people to move into, no matter what your background is. Mm -hmm. I would love for you to speak more to that because I do hear that a lot. People say, oh, well, if they just tried harder, if they just worked harder, you know, then this wouldn't be an issue. It's their problem. Can you speak a little bit more to that? I can. So if you take a look even what happened um, after World War II with the GI Bill. So what was supposed to happen were veterans of that war were supposed to be given different kinds of benefits to get houses and to get scholarships, to go to uh, schools and to do all of this. Turns out that that did occur, but primarily for white men, that the, the Black community by and large did not receive those benefits, even though they should have. But we know what was happening in the late 40s and 50s. We certainly didn't have civil rights. It was a lot of, you know, makeshift reconciliation, but it wasn't really there. And so as a result, this is one example, there are many. As a result of that, there has been generational wealth that has been accrued by the white families who were given those benefits in the 40s and 50s to the exclusion of the Black families who weren't able to acquire that wealth. And so I'm now listening. There is a lot of nuance here because I recognize that there are a lot of white males who are poor. And I know that it is difficult for you as a white male who's making whatever amount an hour and barely holding up the roof to to look at somebody like me, you know, brown woman diversity trainer and say, how dare you tell me that I have privilege? Mm -hmm. I am poor. Mm-hmm. I recognize that, right? And when you go back and you look at the systemic issues and you bring it now to a current contemporary lens, I could say to those white males, yes, I'm not discounting the fact that you've probably had to work really hard to get your house or your car, or whatever it is that you have or don't have. But pertaining to your car, if you are to be pulled over, the likelihood of you're getting shot based on your skin color or your gender is extremely low. And that right there underscores a privilege that you have that Black men in similar financial situation don't have. Black people, not just men, but specifically men as, as relates to many of the situations that have gone on the last 10 years in this country alone. So that kind of thing. And so people, I believe, need to recognize a lot of the the long-term inequities that have occurred. And so now when people say, well, that's just a handout, it's not 
because when you think about reparations, whether it's with the Native American communities or the Black communities, they had things that were rightly theirs, whether that was land or whether that was benefits that were promised to them, that were either taken or refused by virtue only of their ethnic or racial heritage, however you want to name that. And then there was an entire, the culture that did dominate over them and took those things was able to advance to a measure that was, you know, that was, you know, almost immeasurable. It's amazing. There are billionaires among us, right? That should not be humanly possible. And yet it is because of all of this that's happened. And so now when you say handouts, it's an unfair thing to say by virtue of the historical reason why a lot of Black people, a lot of Native American people, and a lot of other people of color are not at the same, they have not advanced at the same pace mm-hmm. as many white males specifically have. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. That's where we're fighting. When you see people fighting for equity and justice, that's what they're looking at. It's not just, hey, Stick it to the white man. That is, I'm married to a white man. I have a white man as a son. He's a white boy, not a man yet, but he will be a man. I am not coming against that. I am coming against the system that has been perpetuated. And I'm trying to educate all of us. Mm -hmm. We need to take a look at how this system is broken and to look at repairing it in a way that's not just a patch job, but truly, truly reforming it. And that is a long process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a white son and I mean, he's a quarter Hispanic. My son's a quarter Indian, but nobody can. Yeah. Well, yeah, nobody can (laughs) tell my son either. And I think it's important too. you know, this is a long process of work, but teaching, you know, my son, our, our sons that of their privilege and how important it is to use that privilege for the betterment of people who don't have that privilege, I think is so, so important. It's true. And, you know, as I'm not quite ready to take this message to the church, just because of my own, you know, I need to heal a little bit more, but I'm working toward it. And, you know, the, the message that I really want to take is that Jesus of all people, the one thing that he did, the one thing that he had was power, right? The almighty. And the one thing he did was lay it down by going to the cross. And this very Jesus asks us to do likewise. So I think the one thing that he asks us to be unified and he asks us to lay down our power, maybe not explicitly, but it's certainly all throughout the New Testament and arguably the old. And so I think, well, wait a minute. So then why aren't we willing to lay down our power? And and lay it down, not so much, not lay down completely and to get rid of everything. I'm not asking people to do that. Jesus did ask people to sell everything. I'm not asking people to sell everything. I'm asking you to recognize where it is that you do have power that you can release for the sake of lifting, uh, empowering somebody else. And for those of us who don't have a whole lot of power, what might we do to create more spaces to be emboldened, to say, no, I'm not going to put up with this anymore, Mm. right? You know, for me, I was very disempowered in mainstream church as a brown female. And I was like, forget it. I can't leave the faith, but I can leave the system. And so in leaving the system, I found my empowerment. Mm -hmm. And and that's not easy. I know that's not easy. I I have a high risk tolerance. I want to acknowledge that. But, you know, and it took time. 
it's not easy. And the more that it happens, the more that people do that, then the more that becomes the norm rather than the system being the norm. Yeah. And if the system that's broken, recognize that it's broken, then it has to be fixed. But if so many of us continue to to prop up a broken system, it's going to stay broken. Mm -hmm. But then you you got to realize the system's broken first. And I don't know that a lot of people are there yet. And that's okay. But you know, I guess that's where it makes our work all the more important. Mm-hmm. Helping to bring that into, into people's awareness yeah. for sure. Yeah. And in a way that's not accusatory. I don't, sometimes I do get a little feisty and I try not to accuse anybody, but just to help them realize, you know, where there truly, truly are imbalances and where, you know, it would behoove us. And even for those people who want there to be, you know, who want to evangelize others, if you will, you know, the message will be so much more palatable if it's one of love and not of control or fear. I'm glad to hear you get feisty because I do too. (laughs) And it's, (laughs) it's hard when this is something that is so, it's so emotionally driven. And for me, I'm like, you are talking about my child. Like it is so personal to me that it, it's hard sometimes to not get to a place where I just want to say, screw all of you. And you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, Sarah, I want to be real brazen about this. If you as a female or women of color specifically are called out for our emotions or speaking up or being, you know, this or that, that's all rooted in sexism and racism. Straight up. That for me to to show you my emotion or my rage or my discontent and for me to be criticized for it, if I were a white man, I would be promoted for having this kind of fiery feistiness, this kind of, ooh, he's, he's, a, he's a hound dog and he can go and he can, oh, let's put him at the top of the company. Yeah. What? No. So no, you continue to be it. And my big thing, my number one rule is I criticize behavior, not people, right? I don't personally attack. I'll attack your idea. I will not attack you. Mm-hmm. And as long as I stay within those parameters that I teach my children and I teach people who come through my trainings, fine. All bets are off though after that. Yeah. <laughs> And if you want to come at me, you know, for anything else, then I need you to recognize if you're criticizing white men, right? Rich men specifically for the same behaviors. Yeah. As women, anger is not acceptable. We're not supposed to be angry. Yeah. Why? Why? Because it makes those in control feel out of control. Yes. So, so good. So many good nuggets here. So one of the things that you say is, you know, you've overcome abuses, you've overcome hard things in your life and obstacles. And really that has led you to a place of being able to be a fearless woman. So can you speak a little bit more to that? I think for me, it it doubled down when I saw my first daughter. I remember looking at her and she looks almost just like me. It's a little uncanny. And I remember thinking, I have to overcome all of these fears if I want to raise her to be the kind of woman that I dream about being. Mm. Then I was like, wait a minute, if I I knew the woman I dreamt about being, and I was like, why can't I get there? So I think the religion had to fall apart. And then from there, I had to do a lot of the things that I had been told were wrong, that if I had enough Jesus, I shouldn't be going to therapy. 
Mm. I went to therapy with enough Jesus that if I had enough Jesus, I shouldn't be controlling my depression or anxiety with medication. I did have enough Jesus, but I also had serotonin levels and estrogen levels that were out of whack, especially after having three kids in five years in my late thirties. So I did do that. And then I got rid of a lot of the toxic theology that was driving that I was fear was driving me like just this. And it made me, it it paralyzed me. It caused me not to doubt God, but to doubt myself. And if you're constantly doubting yourself, you can never actually move forward. So I doubled down and I went to therapy. I, I, I kind of got my mental health in check in a lot of different ways. I will note that I lost 40 pounds And that did not help at all with my mental or emotional health. It helped me get into the size jeans that I wanted, but I needed to deal with deep, deep issues that had nothing to do with my size. Mm -hmm. And I want to let people know that right now, that I thought if I just lose this 40 pounds, everything will be fine. People will treat me great. No, no. People will treat you how you project to be treated. And maybe that is, that's a side story, but internally, I still had all of the same insecurities, all of the same hangups, but just with a smaller ass. And no, I needed to do all of that work. And then I also, there's another tool and it'll totally take us down a different road, but learning about my Enneagram type. I don't know if you've oh, heard of it. Yes, love it. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it was a good tool for me that a lot of Christians will say is demonic. I don't feel like it's demonic. It, to me, it, what it does is it looks at your motivations and it takes a look at some, what you do in health and what you do in unhealth. And I spent the entirety of 2019 doing the opposite of my tendency. Mm. So I, I'm very, I'm a high risk taker when it comes to businesses and, you know, and I'm a super extrovert, but intimately, you know, this probably has to do with my history as well. It's hard for me to make the first move, right? Intimately, but I want to, but I'm afraid to. So in 2019, anytime I felt afraid of somebody, how somebody felt about me, I went toward that person mm. and it was a game changer. Because I realized the life that I was afraid of was happening because of my fear. And once I stepped out of that fear, I got to create the life that I wanted. And I think that empowered me to start a business. It's empowering me to have better relationships all around, Hmm. despite losing everybody after 2020 and despite the pandemic and all of that. So yeah, that that's everything. And it was long. It start, all of this started in 2016. And I feel I truly started walking into it in 20. Okay, I gotta ask, what number are you? Oh, I'm a four. A four? I'm with a three wing. I'm a hardcore. And because I'm an extrovert, I look like a seven. Like that's kind of how I present people. Like, you can't be a four. You're a seven. Before. I guarantee I'm a four, you know, but only certain people get to see the fourness. But yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm an eight and I had a hard time accepting being an eight. I didn't want to be an eight. I understand. (laughs) That's okay though. Eights are wonderful and beautiful. And I just read this morning, eights, eights aren't the angry ones. Eights are just more comfortable with anger. Mm. So I hope that's empowering to you. Eight people. You know, I love eights. One of my best friends is an eight. And I think, I don't know. I don't have well, any. Well, and don't eights go to four? 
Eights when, go to two when they're healthy. The two. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And they go to fives when they're un, they go to five when they're unhealthy. Okay. All right. Very cool. I love the Enneagram. I think, yeah, we could probably do a whole episode on that. <laughs> we, could, we could. I mean, I need to get certified. I'm no expert, but it was certainly insofar as it helped me personally. That's wonderful. I think it's so amazing that there are so many tools that we can access to help us on this journey. And and I love that now you're able to help people through this identity formation journey because it's it's an important one. And it's not one, I think a lot of people think it's just going to happen on its own, right? And that you know, you just go along and it just kind of unfolds, but that's not true. It takes so much conscious effort and intentional work uh, to to really get to those places within ourselves where we can even know who we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and that's why like for your daughter, I hope that she really starts it now because I believe that it's possible. I mean, when, when we're young, it's always hard to kind of see things from certain lenses just be- because we're only 20. And, but I think, you know, I think there does, there is something to be said about turning 40 and just the freedom that brings. So once everybody turns 40, life will be free. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Very true. Okay. I know you, you probably partially just answered this a little bit, but what do you feel has been the most vital to your growth? Everything that I've said, but also I think if I were going to pinpoint it to something, it's learning not to be afraid of myself. Mm. That's powerful. Can you expand on that? I think so long we are guilt tripped as women or as people of color or as religious people to, like we said, I mean, that's the theme of today is fear, right? That you have to, you don't be this kind of woman. Well, be careful because you don't fit in culturally. So don't be this, don't, don't be too ethnic, right? Religious, don't be too this or that as a female or as a Christian person. It's always this don't, don't, don't. But I'm like, well, wait a minute. If I'm constantly not, if I'm constantly afraid of all of the things that I shouldn't be doing, well, then I'm not focusing on the things that I ought to be doing. And when you're focusing on the things that you ought to be doing, which is totally unique to each of us, and that does incorporate our faith and our color and our genders and our all of those things it incorporates all of those things then we start finding about like mission and purpose and this is what i was born to do and then you stop being afraid and and my favorite kind of coupling is is confident humility right either so much that i don't know and there's so much that i've done wrong and there's so and not done like in a guilty way but just i don't always get it right period i don't i don't i'm confident in the fact that I want to entrust myself to do the thing that I know to do and surround myself with the people who will help me get there and to call upon God when I believe that I need to do that, which is always, but for me, but in whatever form that takes for people. So hopefully that flushes that out a little bit. I I just feel like I need to sit with that for a little bit. You need to meme that, learning to not be afraid of myself. (laughs) Okay, I will. I will. It's just so much. It's it's really powerful just in one sentence because I think we really are afraid of ourselves and, and afraid of who we truly are because a lot of times it just doesn't conform. Mm hmm. 
Yeah, and look at what people have told you our whole lives. Look at media tells you, you've got to look this way. You know, uh, maybe authority figures, you've got to do it this way. It's always, this is the way. And then of course, a trend will change it. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Why? Who said, well, this is my four coming out, right? Like who said it has to be this way? Why can't I do it my own way? And not to say that you've got to reinvent the wheel. There is something about, you know, going with some things that are tried and true, but in the truest sense of what that means, there is never going to be anybody who's like you ever again. So be, be who you are and do it well. Yeah. There's another one. Got it. All right. So next question is, what do you want to make sure that people know walking away from this? That there's always room for change. And I I leave room for redemption wherever I go. That, that it, you know, it's not over until it's over. And I hope everybody recognizes that, that I hope that even now, you know, you know, that I wanted to be doing the things that I'm doing when I was 25 and they're not going to happen until I'm in my mid forties. So that 20 years, fine. It's not wasted, but I had to wait. I had to wait to get where I wanted. I wasn't one of these 30 under 30 types, you know, these, these lists again, you know, Oh, if I don't get it done by 30, I've somehow failed. Who made up that rule? Mm-hmm. Who made up the 40 under 40, right? I am going to be a thriving old woman and I am going to have no shame in that. I love that. I'm like twenties before social media. So take that. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I can't tell you how grateful I am for that. All of this stuff from the nineties. I feel like uh, the eighties, the people who grew came of age in the eighties though ought to be most thankful. Cause I don't think anybody was attractive in the eighties. <laughs> The styles. I'm like, really? <laughs> That's so funny. I am often so thankful that there is no documentation of my really hot mess years. <laughs> my eighth grade yearbook picture, my bangs were so high that the picture cuts them off. Yeah, we need to see that. We need to put that one in the show notes. I'm on social media because I know, you know, I just don't. I'll send it to you. You can have it. <laughs> Uh, All right. I look forward to it. All right, Renee, I know that people, I'm sure people are going to want to connect with you after this. So how can they connect with you? Tell them a little bit about what you offer. I know you have a podcast. There's quite a few places where they can find you and get in touch. So why don't you give them more info on that? Yes. So for everybody, if, if this resonated with you, the conversation today with Sarah, the podcast is really going to resonate with you. I and my best friend, Nicole, who's half black, it's called Not Only But Also. And we talk about being in the both and, and we talk about mm-hmm. and basically all of the topics we've talked about today, we talk about on the podcast and we flush it out. We've talked about being moms, being wives, you know, like we are moms, but we don't always want to be moms. So it's looking at the both and mm-hmm. uh, with a Trump episode, that's episode four. And so we just launched in September and it's doing well and we're so thankful. So Noba podcast. And then what's it? Can you say that again? What's it called? An OBA podcast. So that's how you can find us on the socials or it's not only, but also you can look that up on iTunes or wherever you Apple podcasts, whatever you listen to podcasts. That's right. Yeah. And then professionally, if you are an organization in whatever your field is culturally intelligent, 
Com. We provide training and consulting, but not the one-off workshop. We really have a long-term solution. We try to work with companies between four to 12 months because just doing a workshop is not going to get your company woke. It just mm-hmm. won't. I mean, we are really good, but we're not that good. And so we really try to put in the model of working alongside of you to truly uh reshape your company culture to be one that's inclusive of all voices. Mm, that's that's that. And then me personally, I guess Instagram would be the place. That's my safe place. It's a uh, Renee Ronica and you can, you know, you'll have all of those. Yeah. And that can connect with me and any of those places will lead you to being able to email or connect with me in whatever way, shape or form. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to listen to your podcast and tell my daughter about it also. Oh, good, good. Oh, I think she'll love it. Yes, I'm sure she will. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for being here today, but also thank you for all of the important work that you're doing. And thank you for doing your work so that now you can come and pour all of that goodness onto all of us. So I just really appreciate you. And I'm glad I've been able to chat with you today. Oh, likewise you, Sarah. Thanks so much. And yes, I appreciate your creating a space for people like me to be able to come on and just share whatever with you. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the We Podcast. I don't know about you, but I just wanted to keep talking with Renee all day. She is such a woman full of so many amazing insights. So if you are just coming into this realm of privilege and some of these ideas about racial inequality, I really encourage you to figure out what needs to happen to be able to lean into that and really start opening awareness in that area. I know it can be a difficult topic, especially if it's something that's fairly new for you. So I encourage you to follow Renee and listen to her podcast, which I'm sure will also be helpful on the journey to greater awareness. Some of my most memorable quotes from this episode were when she said, be who you are and do it well. I think that we could all put that up on our mirrors, right? Also, learning to not be afraid of ourselves. Can you imagine how powerful we would be if we had no fear surrounding who we are? And then my most favorite was when she said that she had to overcome her fears to teach her daughter to become the woman she dreamed of being. That one really stopped me in my tracks. I would love to hear about your favorite moments from this episode. So find me on social media and let's get connected. Also, if you loved it, please make sure that you leave us a review. This show is produced by Loudspeaker Networks. Also giving credit to my talented daughter for creating my show music. You can find more of the WE podcast as well as many other awesome things on the network at loudspeaker.fm. If you heard something that touched you, don't forget to share with your friends. Remember, your story makes you who you are. Speak your truth. Show up for the hard conversations. Choose growth and always know that you are not on this journey alone. See you next time. This has been a production of Loudspeaker Networks. For more on this and other programs, visit loudspeaker.fm.